Hello, everyone. This is your host, Mahek Shan. Welcome to a new episode of the Heart Success Podcast, where we discuss practical knowledge and the latest in the field of cardiovascular medicine. All listeners be advised that the podcast is for personal information, education, and entertainment only. Information from this podcast should not be used as medical dictum, and all decisions related to patient care should be made in consultation with care providers. Welcome to episode six of Heart Success. We are going to take a different approach this time. We don't have an expert interview, but we decided that considering the richness of data that came out of the European Society of Cardiology meeting, it would be very important to go over, one, the heart failure trials that were presented at this meeting, and two, the other major cardiovascular trials that also came out, some of which actually have clear clinical impact. I know Every time there is a meeting, there's so much information that comes out of these meetings. It's difficult to keep track of what was presented and if and how it changes practice. So we thought we'll take this approach where we will try to present most of the important randomized control trials that came out at this meeting. Maybe try to give a little bit of context to how and when it could apply in practice. Hopefully you'll enjoy this. Uh, it is a monologue because I'll be talking a lot during this entire episode. I don't have an expert interview today. We'll have one next time where we'll be talking about more heart failure medical therapy. So sit back, relax, and hopefully you will enjoy listening to all these great studies that came out of ESC 2019. We'll try to do it in order uh, depending on the day they were presented. And I'll start with the Themis trial, which is T-H-E-M-I-S. It was funded by AstraZeneca. It is ticagrelor in patients with stable coronary artery disease and diabetes. What the authors tried to do, or the investigators tried to do in this study, was they performed a randomized double-blind trial where patients over the age of 50 years who had stable coronary artery disease and type 2 diabetes received either aspirin plus ticagrelor, or aspirin, plus placebo. So it was really dual antiplatelet with ticagrelor versus just aspirin. They excluded patients who had prior myocardial infarctions or strokes. They randomized over 19,000 patients, median follow-up, almost 40 months. And what they found was the incidence of ischemic cardiovascular events was lower in patients who were on ticagrelor than those that were on placebo. The absolute difference was 0.8% at 40 months. So that's a small difference. The number needed to treat would come to 125 patients being treated for 40 months to reduce one ischemic cardiovascular event. Now, as you can imagine, Patients who were on dual antiplatelet therapy had more bleeding. The incidence of TIMI major bleeding was much higher on patients who received ticagrelor, hazard ratio being 2.32, absolute difference being 1.2% at 40 months. Also, um, what they looked at was the incidence of intracranial hemorrhage, which is also slightly higher among patients who received ticagrelor the absolute difference being 0.2%. The authors really concluded that in patients with stable coronary artery disease and diabetes, 
without a prior history of myocardial infarction or stroke. Patients who received ticagrelor plus aspirin had a lower risk of ischemic cardiovascular events, but a higher incidence of major bleeding than those receiving just placebo and aspirin. I think this trial is consistent with what we've seen before being published in this arena. There is really no free lunch. If you're going to add an extra antiplatelet or antithrombotic medication to your usual single antiplatelet regimen, you will see some reduction in ischemic events, but always we've experienced an incidence, a higher incidence for significant bleeding. You can see that in some recent studies that were published, you know, the COMPASS trial comes to mind where they looked at patients with stable cardiovascular disease. So these were patients who had either coronary disease or peripheral vascular disease, really, and they put them on a little bit of rivaroxaban, low dose, 2.5 milligrams twice daily, on top of the aspirin in one arm, and they saw the same thing. They had a reduction in ischemic events at the cost of much higher bleeding. We don't even have to go back that far. 2012, I think there was another trial which was the TRAP2 TIMI50, where they put patients on Vorapaxar. If you remember, this was a novel antiplatelet agent that inhibited thrombin through antagonizing the PAR1 receptor. Had 26,000 patients, you know, who had a history of MI, stroke, or peripheral arterial disease, and these patients who received Vorapaxar on top of the single antiplatelet, they had a reduced risk for cardiovascular death or ischemic events, but uh, significantly higher risk of bleeding. And they had a much higher risk of intracranial hemorrhage, which is why that drug is not used in practice anymore. So all in all, this trial doesn't change practice by much. While the main Themis paper was published in NEJM, they published a subgroup analysis in the Lancet at the same time. This subgroup analysis was among patients with stable coronary artery disease and diabetes, of course, but patients who actually had received percutaneous coronary intervention and um, showed that ticagrelor added to aspirin reduced the ischemic events to a greater degree among these patients. But at the same time, they also saw that uh, the major bleeding, the TIMI major bleeding occurred at a much higher rate. The benefit was, was maybe more pronounced in this group. Moving on to the second trial was one of the most awaited trials at the ESC was the Paragon Heart Failure Trial. We already have results from Paradigm Heart Failure which they used sasubitril valsartan in heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, published in 2014, is one of the largest randomized control trials done in patients with heart failure and reduced ejection fraction, showing remarkable benefit for using ARNIs, which are angiotensin receptor neprilysin inhibitors, compared to your usual standard of care, which is ACE inhibitors. Among patients with heart failure and preserved ejection fraction, we haven't had any benefit or advantage uh, with using neurohormonal blockade agents, being ACE inhibitors or ARBs or beta blockers. 
maybe controversial, maybe maybe advantage with using spironolactone based on the results from the TopCat trial, which had some regional inconsistencies in their results. Um, we really have no medications that we can use in these patients for heart failure preserved ejection fraction. I will say before we go on to the results for this trial that heart failure with preserved ejection fraction is really not the same as heart failure with a reduced ejection fraction. The big reason being HuffPath behaves more like a systemic disease. It is not something that is probably um, isolated to the heart. Uh, it certainly involves the, the vasculature and, and goes beyond that, which makes it very difficult to target something. And I think that's one of the big reasons why a lot of the drugs have failed. It is more of a systemic disease than just a heart problem, uh, as you could possibly say, maybe in reduced ejection fraction more so. So the purpose of Paragon heart failure was to evaluate the effect of sasubitril valsartan versus valsartan alone in reducing cardiovascular death and heart failure hospitalizations in patients with preserved ejection fraction. And they defined preserved ejection fraction as an EF of 45% and above. So they did have some patients that you would say probably fall in the mid-range ejection fraction, you know, that 40 to 50% range where we don't have normal ejection fraction, but we don't have markedly reduced ejection fraction. So a small fraction of patients belonged to this mid-range ejection fraction category. And it was a randomized double-blind parallel group active control trial patients were followed for uh, 57 months in this trial. At the end of the study, what they really saw was patients who received sasubitril valsartan had a total event rate of 12.8 per 100 patient years compared to 14.6 per 100 patient years uh, in the valsartan arm. While uh, was a little bit lower, the event rate in the ARNI arm compared to the ARB category. The p-value was 0.0585, narrowly missing clinical significance. The hazard ratio was 0.87 with the 95% confidence intervals crossing over to 1.005. Results uh, were viewed as mainly negative. This is what came out in their subgroup analysis. Maybe there was a greater benefit to patients with a somewhat lower ejection fraction, EF of 57% or under, and in women. I think there's a lot of ongoing discussion on whether a p-value of 0.0585 means the study is completely negative, let's move on and uh, nobody with heart failure preserved ejection fraction should go on sasubitril valsartan. It's certainly difficult to, uh, to deal with these results because, and we all know that the p-value is, is, though we have an arbitrary cutoff, is, is really on a continuum of probability. What we have to wait for is more discussions on where this drug is going to find a place in clinical practice, if any.
When you look at the primary and secondary endpoints for this study, most of the reduction events in the sacerbitral valsartan arms comes from a lower hospitalization for heart failure, where the hazard ratio was 0.85 compared to death from cardiovascular causes, which was fairly similar uh, in both arms. When you look at secondary endpoints uh, or secondary outcomes in this study, we looked for all-cause mortality, really no different between the two arms, but a composite uh, for renal outcomes, which was defined as death from renal failure, end-stage renal disease, or a reduction in GFR of 50% or more from baseline, did favor sasubitral valsartan. Absolute difference was 1.3% over the study duration. Looking at the adverse events from the ARNI arm versus the ARB arm, we know that uh, ARNI is a fairly potent antihypertensive, and, and those of us who use it in practice really have to be very careful uh, in not starting this medication among patients who have a low systolic blood pressure to begin with. And as you would have expected, uh, hypotension with systolic blood pressure of less than 100 millimeters of mercury was 5% higher in the Entresto or the Arni arm compared to Walsartan. They did not have a higher incidence of hyperkalemia, though. In fact, if anything, the incidence of hyperkalemia was much lower uh, in the Entresto arm compared to Walsartan really um, lending some credibility to the fact that this medication doesn't really cause as much hyperkalemia as uh, ARBs. They noticed that the rate of angioedema was slightly higher among patients who received an ARNI. So that was 0.6% versus 0.2%. So the absolute difference really being 0.4% over the study duration. So not a lot of patients but still they had a p-value of 0.02. So all in all, more hypotension, slightly higher rate of angioedema, better renal function, maybe better electrolyte uh, balance with uh, less hyperkalemia in the ARNI arm compared to ARB. It is a negative trial when you look at this study overall. And I, I don't see how we can really prescribe it for most of our patients with heart failure and preserved ejection fraction. Maybe we'll see some secondary analysis come out of this study to help guide our practice in the, in the near future. This also was a study that was funded by Novartis that um, owns the drug Entresto. So it was an industry-funded trial. The next study I would like to discuss fairly briefly is the COMPLETE trial. It was a randomized trial to assess the comparative effectiveness of COMPLETE versus culprit-only revascularization strategy to treat multivessel disease after early percutaneous coronary intervention in patients presenting with ST elevation myocardial infarction. There have been several randomized control trials over the last few years that have continued to show a consistent benefit in reducing some of the MACE events among patients who get 
complete revascularization versus culprit artery only revascularization. However, the arguments have been that these trials have been smaller in size, really didn't have adequate sample sizes to be able to um, clearly give us an answer. You know, we've had a lot of data maybe suggesting a reduction in MACE events when you perform additional non-culprit lesion PCI in addition to the culprit lesion PCI only among patients who present with STEMI. Now, the observational studies showing benefit were, of course, limited by their selection bias and confounding. And the randomized trials also, which showed reductions in the risk for composite outcomes with non-culprit lesion PCI, were driven predominantly by the decreased risk of subsequent revascularizations and the meta-analysis that showed a reduction in the risk of death from cardiovascular causes or MIs really did not have the power individually to examine this clinically important outcome. This complete trial was really designed to address this particular evidence gap. They randomized over 4,000 STEMI patients to complete revascularization, really 2,000 in each arm, compared to culprit lesion-only PCI. And they had a pretty significant reduction in their primary efficacy endpoint with complete revascularization. Cardiovascular death, or MI, was much lower. So the authors concluded that in patients with STEMI and multivessel coronary artery disease, a strategy of staged, non-culprit lesion PCI with the goal for complete revascularization resulted in a 26% lower risk of a composite of death from cardiovascular causes or new MI at a median follow-up of three years than did the strategy of culprit lesion-only PCI. They also concede that this benefit was driven by the 32% lower risk of new non-fatal myocardial infarction in the complete revascularization group the incidence of death from cardiovascular causes was really similar in both groups. They had a second co-primary outcome, which included ischemia-driven revascularization in addition to the other two events. And the risk with a complete revascularization strategy was um, really half compared to the culprit lesion-only PCI strategy. There were no significant differences in, uh, between the two groups in terms of major bleeding or stroke. And the interesting thing was, you know, I think the previous trials that were conducted uh, required you to get the non-culprit lesion PCI within a certain amount of time from the index PCI for the culprit lesion for STEMI. In this study, the benefit for complete revascularization was consistently observed regardless of whether the non-culprit lesion PCI was performed during the index hospitalization or several weeks after discharge from the hospital. The study was funded by the Canadian Institute of Health Research. It does bring more data to the front that doing more complete revascularization really doesn't offer a mortality advantage, but does reduce the risk for new non-fatal myocardial infarction and also lowers ischemia-driven revascularization. I'm not sure how this is going to change practice or guidelines. We'll have to just wait and see. 
I don't think uh, this factors into the cost and the time of being able to do this right away as well. And uh, one of the things that we don't see is safety outcomes when it comes to renal failure and renal damage also in addition because we know that patients who receive staged PCI really more revascularization do end up getting more dye and some of these you know patients with chronic kidney disease uh, may not be able to handle the extra dye load over time maybe we just don't have enough time and enough data to look at um, some of the negatives in this study though I think the major safety endpoints were really no different those really being the incidence of stroke or the incidence of bleeding. The contrast-induced acute kidney injury was pretty similar in both arms. It was 1.5% in the complete revascularization arm versus 0.9% in the culprit lesion only. Those rates are pretty low, so it really comes down to how they defined it, how they follow it. Maybe looking at patients who were beginning with compromised kidneys or compromised low GFRs, how they, uh, how their kidneys fared over a longer period of time, considering the, the recurrent hit um, on kidney function from, from this as well. One of the big positive heart failure trials that came out of ESC this year was the DAPA heart failure trial, where they looked at dapagliflozin in patients with heart failure and reduced ejection fraction. Dapagliflozin is an SGLT2 inhibitor. Those who've been following these SGLT2 drugs really started out with the diabetes trials. You know, you have uh, the Empereg outcome, you have the Canvas. Uh, more recently, we had the Declare Timmy, uh, where they use dapagliflozin in patients. And we've seen a, a reduction in heart failure hospitalization uh, or de novo heart failure in this group of patients with diabetes getting SGLT2 inhibitors. We haven't really figured out why that's the case. There are several theories probably being researched as we speak as to why we've noted a significant advantage of using dapagliflozin in patients with diabetes, uh, reducing heart failure, probably because you know what we've seen is they lower blood pressure a little bit. They are glucose uric agents. They increase the sugar content in your urine. That's how they get rid of a lot of the extra glucose. And because of that, they induce some degree of diuresis as well. So these are some of the mechanisms that we think it works by. Of course, beyond this also, I think there's some data showing maybe some positive effects on cardiac remodeling as well that these, these drugs may help with. So while we figure that out, what we also started realizing is that dapagliflozin is becoming a heart failure drug, it's really not very potent in lowering your hemoglobin A1C. I think most of the studies, the mean mean lowering in hemoglobin A1C was 0.4 to 0.5. So you can imagine that's not very strong uh, as a diabetic drug. And the interest really was, was shifting to whether this is a heart failure drug that you can also use in diabetes that's, that's interesting how the drug has evolved in the last few years as more data has come to light. We will be doing a whole separate episode on SGLT2 inhibitors uh, very soon where we will go over the data that, and, and, and go over the trials we just spoke about. But for this study, so one, one thing that limits how uh, much I can tell you about this study is the fact that it hasn't been published yet. 
So all I have is maybe some slides and uh, whatever data was presented uh, at the ESC. But briefly, it was 4,744 patients that were tested in a multi-center parallel group event-driven randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial where one arm received 10 milligrams of dapagliflozin in patients with heart failure and reduced ejection fraction compared to placebo in the other arm. And the primary endpoint was time to first occurrence of either cardiovascular death or heart failure hospitalization or an urgent heart failure visit. They followed these patients for up to three years. So when you look at the individual endpoints, what you, what you will see is that absolute cardiovascular death was significantly lower among patients who received dapagliflozin. It was roughly 1.9% absolute difference. Uh, it looks like over three years of study. The heart failure hospitalization rate was also significantly lower among patients who received dapagliflozin. The absolute difference being 3.7% over three years. Urgent heart failure visit was also lower by around 3.7% in the treatment arm. Every single individual aspect of the primary endpoint was significant and favored use of dapagliflozin. While all-cause mortality was not part of the primary composite outcome, all-cause death was also significantly lower among patients who were on dapagliflozin compared to placebo. The hazard ratio was 0.73 with a p-value of 0.02. If you look at the Kaplan-Meier curves, it's quite interesting because they overlap for CV death and all-cause death pretty much up to the nine-month mark after which you start seeing the separation in the curves. On the other hand, when you look at worsening heart failure, the curves really do start separating right away. So this may be a drug that you may start seeing more and more in practice. And the other advantage of this, this drug is its renal benefit. You know, in, in some of these other trials that have been published before, it had a pretty significant renal protective effect. I don't have the absolute rate of death difference because I think absolute mortality counts beyond just looking at CV death. And uh, we don't have the full paper with, with information on safety and other issues. In what was presented so far, however, we, we do know that there was no sign for any uh, safety issues with using dapagliflozin. It was a very positive trial favoring use of dapagliflozin. And I know that there's other studies with SGLT2 inhibitors looking at heart failure with preserved ejection fraction as well, where, like we discussed earlier, Paragon heart failure was really negative. So we'll have to wait and see how, how effective this drug will be. And again, it always comes down to cost and benefit. Looks like it is fairly beneficial. Uh, we'll have to look at the absolute rates again for all-cause mortality. And the cost of the drug, on the other hand, and the added burden of um, preauthorizations, cost burden on patients will all have to factor into whether this will really become a mainstream drug for heart failure and reduced ejection fraction. Another interesting study that was presented was the ISAR-REACT-5 study, where they looked at ticagrelor versus prasugrel in patients with acute coronary syndrome. We have Trilogy ACS for prasugrel, and we have Play-Doh 
that were the large randomized control trials in ACS for these respective drugs, uh, which really introduced them into the market several years ago. But we've never really had a true head-to-head trial. The, the good thing about this is really it was an investigator-initiated trial that was funded uh, more or less by national agencies in Europe. And they randomized 4,000 patients with acute coronary syndrome to either ticagrelor versus prasugrel. Most of the pharmacodynamic data shows ticagrelor may be more potent as an antiplatelet agent, has some of these pleiotropic effects because of its effect on adenosine release. The authors say that they expected ticagrelor, if anything, to be superior to prasugrel. What they really found in this study was for the primary endpoint, which was a composite of death, myocardial infarction, or stroke at one year, it was much lower in the prasugrel arm compared to the ticagrelor arm, the absolute difference really being 2.4% at one year, uh, p-value 0.006. They found no increase in bleeding in the prasugrel arm. And when you look at the individual endpoints, really, which is death, myocardial infarction, and stroke, most of the difference uh, where the benefit to prasugrel comes is the reduction in myocardial infarction. The, the difference in death probably wasn't as profound. It was 0.8% absolute difference and really no difference in stroke in either arm. It's an interesting study where maybe Prasugrel, which wasn't used as much in, in practice for patients coming presenting with ACS and who will be undergoing coronary stenting, Prasugrel ended up having a much lower event rate uh, compared to Ticagrelor. Probably it will impact practice, I think, where we will see more patients presenting with ACS undergoing stenting will end up using more prasugrel than ticagrelor. We'll just have to wait and see. There was more data presented there using high-sensitivity high sensitivity cardiac troponin uh, in patients presenting to the ER with suspected acute coronary syndrome really uh, helps reduced the length of stay in the ER by over three hours and increased the number of patients being discharged from the ED uh, by over 50%. So I think this is more consistent data in line where use of high-sensitivity cardiac troponin early uh, is is very helpful in ruling out myocardial uh, infarction or acute coronary syndrome in patients. So I think this was a, it was called historic. It was high sensitivity cardiac troponin on presentation to rule out myocardial infarction, a stepped wedge cluster randomized control trial that was also presented at ESC. An interesting study that was also presented uh, was the CHAT-DM study, where they used mobile health intervention to see if text messaging patients with diabetes would actually help with better glycemic control. Uh, it was just 500 patients and 250 patients received six text messages per week for six months in addition to the usual care. And these messages were really tailored to provide educational and motivational information on glucose monitoring, blood pressure control, medication adherence, physical, physical activity, and lifestyle. The control group received just usual care and two thank you messages per month. Uh, what they showed was that improvement in glycemic control was much, much better in patients who received text message intervention 
compared to control. So fairly interesting how we can probably integrate some of our technology into improving outcomes for our patients. And, and this really may go beyond diabetes control and help with some of these other diseases that are fairly challenging, especially among patients where we have issues with medication adherence. The next study I'm going to discuss is the AFIRE study, A-F-I-R-E, which looked at antithrombotic therapy for atrial fibrillation with stable coronary disease. This is a great study because this is a question that keeps coming up in practice. When you have patients who have known coronary disease or stable coronary artery disease and atrial fibrillation, should we be using an extra antiplatelet agent on top of the NOAC? In my practice, I have actually moved away from using the extra antiplatelet agent because there's a lot of observational data showing really no advantage but increased bleeding. This was funded by the Japanese Cardiovascular Resource Foundation, and it was a study that was performed in Japan. So it's a different group of patients, and we know from previous data that you know it, there is a higher risk of bleeding in Asian patients when they go on extra antiplatelet agents or other blood thinners, which is why they even use lower doses of drugs uh, like Prasugrel or uh, doses when even when they're using dual antiplatelet therapy. So I think taking that with a grain of salt, what they saw in this multi-center open-label trial conducted in Japan was they randomized 2236, 2,236 patients with atrial fibrillation who had undergone either PCI or cabbage more than one year previously or who had angiographically confirmed coronary artery disease not, revascular, not requiring revascularization to receive either rivaroxaban monotherapy at 10 or 15 milligrams per day. The combination therapy patients received rivaroxaban either 10 or 15 milligrams per day plus aspirin at 81 to 100 milligrams per day or Plavix 50 to 75 milligrams per day or Prasugrel 2.5 to 3.75 milligrams per day. So you can see that the doses they used in the Japanese population for AFib stroke prevention, and um, the antiplatelet dose they used for CAD were somewhat lower than what we use for the Western populations. Uh, if you look at the baseline characteristics table, more than 90% had a prior stent of some sort, and then 11%, I think, in both groups had bypass. So these are patients who had true coronary artery disease, and it's important to say stable coronary artery disease. The trial was actually stopped early because of increased mortality in patients getting the antiplatelet on top of the NOAC. Rivaroxaban monotherapy was non-inferior to combination therapy for the primary efficacy endpoint. The event rate was 4.4% versus 5.7% in the combination therapy arm. And using just rivaroxaban was superior when it came to the safety endpoint with point. 1% per patient, you're higher risk of significant bleeding among patients receiving an antiplatelet agent. Authors really conclude, as far as antithrombotic therapy goes, rivaroxaban monotherapy probably is enough for patients who have known atrial fibrillation and stable coronary artery disease without the need to maintain these patients on an antiplatelet agent. Understanding that this data comes from a really Japanese population may not be applicable two patients in the United States, we really do need a study in this very population 
to to see whether all these patients who have AFib and have known coronary disease or even have had prior uh, ACS, once they've been doing well and, and the disease has been stable for 6 to 12 months, do they really need to be on an extra blood thinner in the form of an antiplatelet agent or either aspirin or Plavix, or are they okay staying on just the uh, either the vitamin K antagonist or really more so in today's language uh, should be the new the NOACs, which are non-vitamin K uh, oral anticoagulants, being apixaban or rivaroxaban or idoxaban or dobigatran. We had some follow-up data from previous randomized control trials. Everybody's heard of the Syntax trial, which was initially designed as a non-inferiority trial comparing percutaneous coronary intervention using first-generation paclitaxel eluding stents versus coronary artery bypass grafting in patients with either de novo three-vessel disease or left-main coronary artery disease, and they reported previously five-year results. Now they, res- they reported 10-year all-cause mortality results. This is actually great because it really keeps it simple. It reports all-cause mortality at 10 years. And what this study found was that at 10 years, there was no significant difference in all-cause mortality between either PCI using first-generation paclitaxel eluding stents or coronary artery bypass grafting. However, when they look at the subgroups, they found that maybe cabbage was actually better and had a survival benefit when you looked at patients with significant three-vessel disease, but not as much when you looked at patients with left-main coronary artery disease. You know, the results of this trial are, are favoring use of cabbage in patients with three-vessel disease, but we also have come a long way in these 10 years uh, where we have better stents. We have second-generation, third-generation drug-eluting stents, which you could argue are better than what we had uh, with the first-generation stents, meaning maybe the event rates would favor if we were to use these better stents com- and compare them to bypass today. Uh, and at the same time, I think left main stenting also has become fairly uh, commonplace at a lot of the large centers where it can be done fairly safely. And we have results from, again, randomized control trials showing safety and efficacy of using left main stenting. I don't know if it impacts clinical practice as much, but it's certainly interesting to see that uh, in the overall population with complex three-vessel disease and left main disease, uh, the all-cause mortality really was not that different with maybe some inkling to using cabbage for three-vessel disease. And on the other hand, maybe using PCI when it's uh, really just left main disease and, uh, and you don't have other complex coronary artery disease. There was another um, heart failure trial called Galactic which was really goal-directed afterload reduction and acute congestive cardiac decompensation. If you've been following heart failure trials, especially the acute heart failure trials, uh, you wouldn't be surprised that this was another negative trial. I think it's been a challenge trying to use medications in acute heart failure, most of which are used for a short amount of time or short-term interventions and expect that they would cause reductions in hard endpoints. So in this study, they looked at an early invasive vasodilation strategy or a goal-directed afterload reduction uh, strategy in patients who presented with acute decompensated heart failure and found that such 
early intensive vasodilation strategy did not really impact 180-day all-cause mortality or rehospitalization in patients hospitalized for acute heart failure. We don't have the full paper available, but again, this is consistent uh, in patients with heart failure. I think it's important to use these strategies, detect heart failure early, use diuretics, uh, and escalate diuretics during hospitalization. These are um, directions in which we should continue to improve our acute heart failure management, but we're still waiting on either a drug or a strategy that would clearly impact hard hard endpoints in acute heart failure patients beyond just the rehospitalization that data that came from uh, Pioneer Heart Failure recently. We need to reassess what our endpoints need to be. You know, rehospitalization, maybe shorter hospital stay, maybe improved dyspnea scores may not be bad surrogate endpoints to look at when you're trying a new strategy. Honorable mention to a study that looked at high-risk heart failure patients with reduced ejection fraction who have coexisting moderate to severe renal dysfunction. You know, we've always been questioning the role for using ACE inhibitors or ARNIs or, or ARBs uh, or mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists in patients with compromised, significantly compromised renal failure. And um, this study confirms that beta blockers do remain effective for preventing death in heart failure patients with reduced ejection fraction and sinus rhythm, even when you have moderate to moderately severe kidney dysfunction. I think this is a great, great point to continue using and pushing beta blocker therapy maybe in these patients where you may not be able to start some of these other neurohormonal blockade agents because of safety issues. They presented two-year results from MitraFR, which we've discussed in previous episodes, was a MitraClip trial used for functional mitral regurgitation among patients with heart failure and reduced ejection fraction. One-year results were negative compared to the two-year positive results, which came from COAPT. The two-year results that were now presented uh, remain negative at 24 months. The addition of a MitraClip to medical management did not decrease the rate of death or unplanned hospitalization for heart failure. And if you look at the numbers and the hazard ratios, they really are very similar to each other. There's really no trend for benefit. Now, the trend of thought that MitraFR dealt with patients with proportionately severe mitral regurgitation or moderate to severe mitral regurgitation compared to COAPT, which enrolled patients on better medical therapy with more disproportionately severe mitral regurgitation. Disproportionate meaning the degree of mitral regurgitation was more severe than you would have expected with that much LV dysfunction, meaning maybe there is a primary process on top where the MR is also making the heart failure worse or LV remodeling worse. Uh, We don't have good validation of this hypothesis. Uh, Still pending, I think there's a recent paper published by Milton Packer where he explores this in some of the other studies that have been published with probably somewhat inconsistent results uh, and makes it difficult really to push this concept going forward uh, and apply it to your individual patients. But there's definitely more. You'll be hearing a lot more on this in the coming few weeks, and we'll be doing a whole episode on 
mitral valve disease accompanying heart failure. So unfortunately, two-year results from mitral FR remain negative. Uh, if you recall, COAPT was positive at two years, but their results were negative at one year, so there was some hope that maybe mitral FR results will start changing and we will see some benefit accrue over time. Clearly, that has not been the case so far. I am not sure if the investigators plan on continuing to follow these patients for any longer. Also, the full paper is still not published, so it makes it difficult to really give you more information. The one study I would really like to talk about is a community-based comprehensive intervention to reduce cardiovascular risk in hypertension. It's a HOPE-4 cluster randomized control trial. A cluster randomized control trial is different from the usual randomized control trials because in a usual randomized control trial, you have individuals being randomized into either your treatment group or your control group. On cluster randomized control trials, groups of subjects are actually randomized. And this type of randomized control trial has its advantages and disadvantages, of course. This study is important because it deals with something that is very practical. You know, we've been talking about studies where you're adding medications to already existing therapies and getting a point percent difference in absolute outcomes over months to years of treatment. What's really has a more prominent global burden is the burden of untreated or undertreated hypertension or diabetes worldwide. So HOPE4 was an open-label, community-based, cluster-randomized control trial, which included 1,371 patients with new or poorly controlled hypertension from communities in the countries of Colombia and Malaysia. And these were somewhat maybe under-served uh, communities, where communities were randomized to model of care involving non-physician health workers. So engaging these uh, health workers into community care with the assistance of primary care physicians and the patient's family, providing the patients with effective medications at low to no cost and seeing if this could substantially reduce cardiovascular disease. And what the study showed was it was very successful. Using this comprehensive model, really led by non-physician health workers, which means that in some of these countries where the doctor-to-patient ratio is really not as favorable as it is in the West, involving these non-physician health workers under supervision with primary care physicians and using help from family members, providing medications to improve blood pressure control, reduce cardiovascular disease risk, was very, very uh, helpful. They saw was actually there was a much more significant reduction in systolic blood pressure in the intervention arm compared to controls. The proportion of patients who achieved adequate blood pressure control defined as maybe a systolic of less than 140 millimeters of mercury was almost 70% in the intervention arm compared to 30% in the control group without any, any concerns for safety. So I think this is a, a great study uh, which possibly implemented at policy level in some of the low to moderate income communities and countries across the world to potentially improve uh, health within the community, improve hypertension control, and reduce cardiovascular disease risk.
The primary endpoint of this study was actually the change in Framingham risk score, 10-year cardiovascular disease risk estimate at 12 months between the intervention and control groups. This reduction in Framingham risk profile for 10-year cardiovascular risk was significantly lower in the intervention group as you would have expected. Keeping in line with, you know, more very impactful studies, maybe with more practical applications at a global level across lower and middle income countries. There was an epidemiological study that was also presented at ASC uh, where they looked at the relationship between socioeconomic status and risk for cardiovascular disease in 20 different low-income, middle-income, and high-income countries called the Prospective Urban Rural Epidemiologic Study, the PURE study. And the authors really looked at data from 154,000 patients from 20 different countries with a mean follow-up of 7.5 years. They had information on education, socioeconomic status, and outcomes in these patients. And what they concluded was that major cardiovascular events were more common among those with low levels of education in all countries, irrespective of the economic status for that country, but it was most pronounced in those that came from low-income countries. And when they looked at the relationship between wealth versus education and the role each of them individually or independently played on outcomes, they noted that it was really a low level of education that increased the risk for worse cardiovascular events and all-cause mortality compared to wealth, which did not seem to have much of an independent independent impact. The differences in outcomes between educational groups were most prominent in the low-income countries and it probably had a lot to do with access to medical care, which is really adequate control of hypertension, diabetes, and appropriate secondary prevention measures. Compared to this, among middle-income countries or high-income countries, the access to medical care itself seemed to have a less marked difference between the different education groups policies to reduce health inequities globally may help overcome some of these barriers to care, especially focusing on patients or people that have lower level of education. Three more studies to go. And the next one is Entrust AF-PCI for patients with atrial fibrillation undergoing percutaneous coronary intervention. You know, they need oral anticoagulation to prevent cardioembolic events. They need antiplatelet therapy to prevent coronary events, really primarily stent thrombosis and acute ischemic events. And we already have data from three different randomized control trials. We have Pioneer AF for Rivaroxaban, Redual PCI for Dabigatran. Most recently, Augustus. Thing that was presented at ACC earlier this year for apixaban, uh, all of which were more or less consistent in showing that combining a NOAC or a non-vitamin K antagonist oral anticoagulant with a P2Y12 inhibitor reduced bleeding compared to using triple therapy where you used 
usually Coumadin in the control arm with aspirin and an additional P2Y12 inhibitor, most commonly clopidogrel, without really impacting ischemia or ischemic events in most of these studies. So I think the overall consensus that we could draw from these studies was that adding a third antiplatelet usually increased the bleeding without significantly affecting ischemia. It's important to know that some of these trials were not powered to look at thromboembolic events or ischemic events, and we really were directed towards bleeding, which is more common, had more events, and were powered for safety than efficacy. So with, with that comes and trust AFPCI, and uh, edoxaben as usual, I feel, is, is always the one that comes out after the others have published their data. This was a industry-sponsored study, enrolled 1,500 patients, of course, excluded, you know, patients with moderate to severe mitral stenosis, mechanical heart valves, end-stage renal disease, and found that this study looked at using a combination of edoxaban and clopidogrel to triple therapy using Coumadin, and found that in patients with atrial fibrillation and a recent PCI, when you randomize them to edoxaban, 60 milligrams daily plus Plavix or clopidogrel, 75 milligrams daily for 12 months, the primary endpoint, which was major or clinically relevant non-major bleeding at 12 months, uh, was 17% in the edoxaban group compared to 20% in the vitamin K antagonist group. When it comes to bleeding, Edoxaban plus Plavix was non-inferior to using Coumadin plus Plavix plus aspirin. The other endpoints, the secondary endpoints, like I said, probably weren't powered enough to look at differences. But cardiovascular death, MI stroke, systemic embolism, and uh, stent thrombosis was really almost identical in the two groups. So the different thing about this trial was that this is the only trial out of all four, and uh, the others really, like I said, using rivaroxaban, dabigatran, and apixaban, all of them showed greater safety with using dual therapy and uh, showed superiority for safety outcomes. This is the only study that showed non-inferiority when it comes to bleeding and failed to show superiority. Their p-value for superiority was 0.12. So it's a little different uh, compared to previous trials. Uh, the number of patients in this study were also 1,500. Follow-up was for 12 months. So I'm not sure if that had something to do with why this happened. When you read the editorial for Entrust AFPCI, they do go over some reasons why you know, we had this trial uh, that failed to show superiority for bleeding reduction compared to a VKA, which is Coumadin, uh, as control. The authors really attribute it to a shorter duration of triple anti-thrombotic uh, therapies where roughly 50% of the patients stopped aspirin at one month. So that will certainly move you 
towards the mean. And um, this study used a full dose of edoxaban compared to maybe when you look at Pioneer AF PCI study, which used rivaroxaban at a much reduced dose in their, in their investigation. The initial penalty period because of subtherapeutic anticoagulation in patients on the VKA regimen, where an INR of less than 2 was noted in 70% of the patients between days 2 and 7. So they think all these probably contributed, in addition to the smaller size of this study, biasing your results towards non-inferiority. They also throw caution to the fact that stent thrombosis seems to be increased when you are cutting out the extra antiplatelet agent. And meta-analyses of previous studies have uh, really shown that there was an increase in stent thrombosis when you use dual therapy compared to triple therapy. And in that meta-analysis, the p-value was 0.06. So really reaching, uh, you would say, not not reaching statistical significance, but clinically, I think this is a question that comes up all the time. And in practice, it's not uncommon where I've seen doctors uh, use triple therapy for a, a, a short amount of time, usually two to four weeks, and then backing off to using just a NOAC and Plavix for the remainder of therapy. This is really comes down to, as we always say, risk-benefit, risk of thrombosis in patients where high-risk patients you may want to continue and antiplatelet for a short amount of time after a new stent. At the same time, if you look at the curves for bleeding, a lot of the bleeding happens early as well. So maybe what will come out of all this is uh, additional meta-analyses and maybe patient-level meta-analyses where we could get something like the DAP score that we had from the DAP study that would help us maybe risk-adjust bleeding versus thrombosis and individualized uh, decision-making. So the next trial that we have is the popular genetics study. And um, this study was a, is titled Cost-Effectiveness of Genotype-Guided Treatment with Antiplatelet Drugs in STEMI Patients, Optimization of Treatment. We have prior observational data showing safety and feasibility of using CYP2C19 genetic testing to drive antiplatelet decisions following PCI since a third of the patients have been identified as non-responders to clopidogrel or Plavix and maybe these are patients that you want to use more potent P2Y12 inhibitors really Prasugrel or Ticagrelor. Now this is not really found mainstream practice because we haven't had any randomized control outcome data to justify using this this strategy. There is a study ongoing uh, called Taylor PCI that is going to evaluate over 5,300 patients to look at this question specifically with outcome data. So until that happens, I think uh, this popular genetic study um, is is interesting because what they did was they randomized almost 2,500 STEMI patients undergoing primary PCI at uh, 10 hospitals across the Netherlands, Belgium, and Italy to standard of care, which was Ticagrelor or Prasugrel for 12 months, or point of care, CYP2C19 genetic testing. And 
within the genetic testing arm, those that were found to carry the loss of function allele, showing that maybe they would be less responsive to clopidogrel, received either ticagrel or, or prasugrel. And those who did not have the genetic allele would go home with clopidogrel. The result was at the end of the study, genetic testing was non-inferior to standard care with respect to the primary composite endpoint of all-cause mortality, MIs, definite stent thrombosis, stroke, and plato major bleeding. So the p-value for non-inferiority was 0 0.001, and they said that genetic testing was superior to standard care for the endpoint of plato major and minor bleeding where bleeding actually was much lesser when you only selectively used prasugrel and ticagrelor among the non-responders. The study was not powered to look at the efficacy endpoint, really the thrombo thrombotic endpoints. So it's difficult to say whether this is going to directly impact how you practice. But I think if Taylor PCI... Uh, comes out and there's more additional data that comes out that is consistent showing using point-of-care genetic testing and using prasugrel and ticagrelor in a more selective fashion among patients who would probably not respond as well to clopidogrel. Clearly, I think uh, makes sense that you would see lesser bleeding and um, equal efficacy. So it'll be interesting to see when these results come out, but certainly some promise again uh, re reignited for using response to clopidogrel again because the P2Y2 assays in the past have really failed to show any hard outcome benefits past. So this is, this is sort of a novel approach again. The last study is a randomized control study looking at early defibrillator use following angioplasty in patients with STEMI, basically following PCI in STEMI patients. We have data from Iris Dynamite which showed that using ICD in the first 40 days after a myocardial infarction uh, among patients with reduced ejection fraction really didn't offer any advantage and possibly uh, harm. Then we have the WEST trial that came out in ACC last year which failed to show any difference in cardiovascular mortality by using a VEST early on um, following an MI in that time period when we don't have patients qualifying to get a defibrillator. It's a small study. They, used, they enrolled 262 patients, followed them for three years. All patients uh, had a ST elevation myocardial infarction and had to have an additional risk factor, which included either LVEF of less than 30% within four days of the STEMI, Timmy flow that was less than three after the primary PCI, or they had primary ventricular fibrillation, or KILIP class more than or equal to two. So if you had one of these risk factors, plus you received a stent for an ST elevation myocardial infarction, you were randomized to either getting a defibrillator versus standard of care, where you wouldn't get a defibrillator early on, only later if you had persistently low EF beyond 40 days uh, post-MI. And um, the trial was terminated because of slow enrollment. But what they saw was interesting. What they saw was that the all-cause mortality at three years was 24.4% in the ICD group 
compared to 35.5% in the standard of care group with a p-value of 0.02. So early ICD implantation within 30 to 60 days in high-risk patients was beneficial, and it was associated with a reduction in all-cause mortality at three years compared to standard of care. Maybe this data goes against, slightly goes against what we've already known, but again, I don't have the full study available. It's not been published yet. And um, the criteria that defined early ICD implantation was within 30 to 60 days. So a lot of that would be standard of care where we would um, implant an ICD beyond 40 days of MI if there was a persistently lower ejection fraction. So until more data comes out, I think it would be difficult to see whether true early ICD implantation made any difference when it comes to STEMI patients that were revascularized, but uh, we will just have to wait and see. It's an interesting study where we are trying to uh, ask a question that we've asked before, but slightly differently in a different patient population, primarily really patients with ST elevation MI receiving uh, primary PCI and high-risk characteristics. That brings us to the end of another episode that we had a great time creating. The reason we chose this approach is because of the amount of randomized control data and the amount of high-quality data that comes out of these national meetings every year. And it's very difficult for you to individually read the papers, go through the results, understand what applies, what doesn't apply to you. And you want to try to get to these studies in a timely fashion So we thought it would be a good idea to try this out where we would cover national meetings and important studies being presented. And then again, you know, if you're interested, you you could always go back to the individual study, explore that further. I would say that simultaneous publication, uh, while that has really become a new thing in recent national meetings, really does help our ability to get all the information we need from the presenters, but actually read through the study and dissect the study at the same time. So it makes it a little bit more challenging because now there's more information to go through, but it's really the way to go. Now, the cons of simultaneous publication have been expressed where sometimes these publications are rushed, maybe with errors, maybe uh, sometimes not very tidy in how it's presented. You know, it's, it's a con of... Uh, using simultaneous publications, but I think there's still a lot of pros to having a full peer-reviewed paper published in a high-impact factor journal at the same time it is being presented at a national meeting because of the completeness of information that is then available for you to be able to make a decision and actually make an informed choice. And like I said, you know, some of the studies, if we don't have the paper published, we only have the slides and the little bit of data that was presented to go by without being able to actually further break these studies down. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed our episode, don't forget to like, subscribe, and give us a high rating as it helps other listeners find us. You can leave your suggestion for topics, critiques, things you think we can do better. You can email us at heartsuccessteam at gmail.com. You can actually find us on our website at www.heartsuccess.info. Our website now also provides links 
to all the podcast providers where you can listen to this episode. You can find us on our Facebook page at Heart Success Team, or you can always reach me on Twitter at CardioBro.